You're listening to Human Rights Talks, organized by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Thanks, everyone, for for tuning in. Um, My name is Kyle Matthews. I'm the executive director of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies in up north in Canada. Uh, We're really pleased today to have this um, report launch for the report titled Digital Authoritarianism, Pathways, Trends, Solutions. Um, This uh, report was put together by Jessica Brandt. Um, Jessica, for those of you who don't know her, please give her a follow on Twitter. She's she's a great account to follow, uh, delving into all sorts of issues on digital authoritarianism, uh, misinformation, disinformation, foreign uh, and foreign um, influence operations. Uh, Jessica is currently the policy director on artificial intelligence and emerging technology initiative at the Brookings Institution, and also a fellow at the a foreign policy fellow at the Strobe Talbot Center for Security Strategy and Technology. So, um, um, and I'd like before I pass uh, or ask my first question to to Jessica, I just want to thank um, the U.S. Embassy in Ottawa for providing us with support to launch the Countering Digital Authoritarianism Initiative, um, which made this report and this. Uh, Twitter space as possible. Um, so, um, Jessica, I think I'm going to just start off. I know I, I shared a couple of questions with you, and, and um, my colleagues are going to share the link to the report for those who are listening can, can, can click on it and see later. But maybe if you could just um, unmute yourself and just, just explain for those listening what, in effect, is digital authoritarianism? I, I think you know a lot of us follow this. We understand the concept, but there might be a few people that don't. So maybe let's, let's kick off uh, on, on that. Yeah, sure. And thanks so much for having me. It's a treat to be with you all, um, all today. Um, you know, I see digital authoritarian activity as comprising at least sort of four pathways um, of action through which authoritarians seek to consolidate their power at home um, and strengthen their position in the world. Um, and, I, you know, I think importantly, these categories are, you know, they're mutually reinforcing and they're overlapping, right? When I like sat down to try to sort of disentangle, um, you know, the avenues through which this um this activity takes place, it was it was surprisingly hard to do because, you know, these um, because of the way that these um, that these actions sort of reinforce one another. Um, but I think of this in terms of mass surveillance, cyber operations, censorship and information operations. Um, you know, when I think about mass surveillance, I, you know, I, I guess I think first and foremost about the um, near ubiquitous um, surveillance cameras within China, um, you know, many of which are married with facial recognition recognition algorithms, some of them are embedded within ethnicity detection capabilities um, that I think really kind of threaten to um, encode power balances um, or imbalances. Um, Also, you know, obviously goes far beyond just facial recognition. Um, You know, we've seen the Chinese government um, endeavor to collect DNA samples, voice prints, iris scans, um, you know, and databases that are accessible across all levels of government. Um, You know, on the cyber ops front, I think about uh, maybe three buckets, like hacking tools that surveil um, and harass dissidents, you know, across borders, um, you know, destructive cyber attacks um, on governments and institutions that really threaten regime interests. Um, and, you know, hacking information to later weaponize in, as an, in an information operation. Um, I could go on. I don't want to um, I don't want to belabor the point. But um, but I think, you know, what's important, again, is that like mass surveillance enables censorship. Censorship can be a form of information manipulation and so on. 
So, no, I, I thank you for putting all those out. I know you've outlined all of these in the report and, and give quite a few examples. And, and, and I would just just emphasize that these are all also very important human rights issues. Uh, surveillance, um, censorship. I mean, you touch on so many human rights issues that, that it, it brings together so many different people working on this. I, I'm wondering, Jessica, you, you wrote this report um, while we've seen um, uh, an ongoing war in Ukraine. I'm wondering, uh, do you think, like, will Russia and China share vision for internet uh, governance and coordination among their respective sectors? Will that, will that increase? Are we going to see this fusion of Russian-Chinese digital authoritarianism come together now because of this conflict? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely clear that Russia and China share a vision for the future of the internet, or at least some of its core elements, you know, where states are um, able to exert significant control over, you know, what kind of information transits their borders. Um, You know, I think in the information space, in the context of Ukraine crisis, we've seen a lot of resonance, you know, in the messaging of the two parties. But I also think there's, you know, reason for pause, right? I mean, take the messaging, for example, you know, China has been I think China's walking a tightrope, honestly. You know, they're very happy to amplify narratives that suit China's interests. Um, So things that sort of cast the U.S. and NATO as the true aggressor, you know, in the lead up to the conflict, to the extent that there were splits between European partners, both parties were very happy to amplify them. Obviously, the biological weapons conspiracy theory, you know, is another place where China really came in and reinforced Russian messaging. But I think, you know, importantly, in all those places, you know, these these also suit Chinese interests, right? China has an interest in, um, you know, casting aspersions on, you know, these kinds of labs because they want to deflect blame for their early mishandling of the pandemic by suggesting that COVID was started in just such a lab in Fort Detrick, Maryland, right? So I think, you know, the the picture is nuanced. China has declined, I think, you know, to, to sort of endorse Russia's invasion wholesale. And there's reason why China might expect that it could face pushback, um, you know, if it... Um, blatantly sort of circumvents various measures to help um, Russia technologically. So I think I think it's a mixed picture. It's not totally clear, um, you know, where it will net out. But I think you know where China's the more powerful player, and where it's in China's interest, it will continue to sort of align itself with Russia, um, and that can have consequences, um, you know, for those of us in the democratic world. No, thanks for pointing that out. We've uh, up here in Canada, we've been looking at China and, and the case of uh, Huawei five G that was recently uh, pushed to the side. So there, there's growing concern about uh, security and digital authoritarianism coming from China, but we're also uh, seeing a lot of Russian disinformation um, trying to spread among Canadians and and some of the the far right and different groups. Um, I'm I'm wondering, uh, Jessica, one one thing that's come up in the news, and I think you touch upon it. Um, a little bit um, in some of your work in the past is, is we've seen some authoritarian states try to engage with social media platforms, basically trying to put staff in place or trying to misuse these platforms for all sorts of reasons. And, and just this week, there was a, a Twitter whistleblower accused the company of having security problems that pose a threat to its users. How, how widespread is this problem and, and what needs to be done about it? Yeah. Well, I think there's maybe multiple sets of problems embedded in this question. Um, I think we certainly see, you know, efforts to, um, 
you know, especially in the context of Russia, right, require, um, you know, foreign Western platforms to have, you know, personnel on the ground in the country uh, as a source and to use that as a source of leverage, um, you know, over these companies to get them to to follow, you know, government requests for takedowns, etc. Um, and it's a way of, you know, again, building leverage to exert information control. Um, you know, the, this question about like whistleblowers, you know, to a certain extent, I think, and I'm also thinking about like the Francis Haugen example, right? Whistleblowers are helpful in terms of like documenting or providing evidence of that, which um, we sort of already have an inkling of. I think what's really important and interesting is like the role of journalists and civil society researchers um, around the world who partner with whistleblowers, of course, um, you know, to, to sort of reveal the various tactics and pathways through which this activity, which is so often convert covert and, you know, deliberately sort of, these are deniable tools and tactics. Um, and so to shed light on this activity, you know, in the various contexts in which, you know, they are situated, right? These are, you know, organizations that exist around the world and are, are I think, best positioned to kind of point out this activity within their own societies. Fascinating. Um, just for everyone listening, I'm going to turn in a few minutes uh, to you. So if you have a question or comment or something that you'd like to bring to our attention, you're, you're welcome to, um, to press the button here asking to speak. Um, and I will then give you the floor, but I'm going to, uh, ask Jessica a few more questions. Um, Jessica, in the report you put together, um, uh, you list a number of recommendations that could prevent or curtail the impact of digital authoritarianism. Uh, in terms of national legislation, what could democratic governments do? Like, are there laws that could be put in place that could better help us in this uh, dealing with this global challenge? Yeah, I think, it, you know, it's a good question. I think there's sort of one bucket of activity, which is expanding or, you know, modernizing in some cases legislation that could make sure that, you know, entities within democratic societies are not enabling human rights abuses elsewhere. Um, so I think this is things like, you know, imposing sanctions on businesses and entities that give, um, you know, that give surveillance technology, training and equipment to authoritarian regimes that are implicated in human rights abuses. Um, you know, things like implementing or in some cases just using existing legislation that would prevent companies um, from investing in other companies that are building AI, you know, tools for repression. Um, I think that's one bucket. I think the other is maybe less a, a do than a, like a thou shalt do than, and more thou shalt not, um, which is to say, you know, before implementing new technology regulations, democratic governments really need to anticipate the ways that, you know, less, uh, less liberal governments that are, you know, seeking tighter information control at home are going to copy or abuse this legislation um, to advance their own goals. So I'm thinking about like, you know, the German effort to create a very powerful regulator with all kinds of incentives to very quickly, um, you know, to err on the side of takedowns. Um, and, you know, that legislation spawned many other efforts um, to, you know, to build on it in other societies that are considerably, have considerably fewer, you know, rule of law protections. So I just think, you know, it's, 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 that fact should not be used by, you know, democratic governments to, 
sort of as an excuse not to take action at all, but it's just really important that um, that they think carefully about how, um, you know, how the actions they take might give a talking point to Russia and China um, and or be implemented in, you know, less than wholly free contexts um, to the detriment of human rights. Um, and then the last thing is, like, we need strong privacy legislation. We don't have that here in the United States. Um, some, you know, democratic governments, um, you know, have put in such measures. But I think um, that's the kind of activity that can really, um, you know, provide protections to citizens. You know, Jessica, I think it's really important how you said that um, while there's concern about authoritarian governments misusing all these forms of tech or, 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 or other strategies to... Um, to curtail authoritarianism or to pursue authoritarianism is that democracies also must watch what we're exporting to them. And, and I know in Canada, uh, um, you know, the work of the Citizen Lab has exposed a lot of this stuff, leaving Canada, other Western countries to, um, to countries around the world. So, so that, that's a key point. Um, maybe I have one last question before um, turning to the audience. So please, everyone, put on your thinking caps. Don't be afraid to pose a question or a comment or something that you think we, uh, we should focus on. But I, I'd like to turn more to the, the, the global side of things, the global uh, governance side of dealing with, with digital authoritarianism. I'm wondering, are there new global standards that can be established to strengthen the rule norms of the future of the internet? Or is this, is this a pipe dream? Is this, is this not really achievable? Yeah, no, I think, you know, when I think about the sort of the tech competition between um, democracies and authoritarian challengers, um, I would say, you know, that, that I think is asymmetric in character. What democracies have to do is sort of audit their own uh, asymmetric advantages. And I think one of them is, you know, their capacity to build um, and generate, you know, and sustain norm, you know, sort of to build norms and to build coalitions that can support those norms. So I don't think it's a pipe dream. I think, you know, it's importantly, there are these, you know, sort of international technical bodies that seem arcane and maybe, uh, you know, I think increasingly do seem relevant to, to the political, geopolitical competition. But, into, but until recently, that was not the case. And, and those are sort of, you know, fora where China shows up with a strategy um, and democratic governments, you know, to date have not, they're not coordinating with one another. They're not sort of, um, you know, engaging with their own private sectors. And so um, this is a space where I think democratic governments and societies need to equip themselves to better, um, you know, to better compete because, because while it may seem arcane, like these are these these technical standards embed norms with them and they shape how technology will be deployed and developed, you know, for decades to come with all of the attendant kind of consequences for the rights and freedoms of millions of people around the world. Um, and I think also importantly, they're supposed to be technical bodies that are, you know, expert led and expert driven. And so we want to make sure I think that you know, we both recognize the extent to which they are a part of the geopolitical competition, but don't kind of create a tragedy of the, you know, sort of make them, um, you know, unintentionally like locus of, you know, sort of this race to the bottom of geopolitical competition. So balancing that's going to be hard. Um, but I think that's, you know, the appropriate task or the task ahead for, um, for these governments. A major, major task ahead. And they need the help of civil society think tanks like Brookings and others to think about this and help them out. So, so I, I could pose questions all day, but I, I see we have some really smart people on the line. Please, uh, if you want to ask a question or have a comment, or if there's something that, that, that you want to bring to attention, please don't hesitate to ask. I think you can press uh, ask to be a speaker at the bottom. Uh, please don't be shy. Um, I don't see anyone coming up yet. 
um, I guess it's it's late in the day and people need another coffee in order to wake up. Um, like to say, our, the report is available. Oh, I don't thought I saw someone that was about to ask a question. Um, so nothing's coming. No one is asking a question yet. So Jessica, I'm going to come back to you. And and there is a lot of focus on Russia and China as the two main authoritarian states that are that are the biggest challenge to to democracies and against, you know, for, for human rights activists and everything. But are there any other countries that we should have our eye on? Uh, is it just those two? Or are there, are there other countries that, that are kind of getting a free pass and not getting as much attention as we should focus on? Uh, sure. No, I think, it, you know, it's an increasingly crowded field, of course, Iran, Saudi Arabia, you know, these are other governments that have used, um, you know, tools in this toolkit to advance their own, their own goals. Um, you mentioned, um, uh, you know, um, Citizen Lab, which has done incredible um, open source intelligence reporting and um, you know investigations of the use of hacking tools, for example, by the Saudi government. Um, you know that has that have targeted um, dissidents, activists, journalists, um, and you know opposition leaders. You know that lived you know far beyond Saudi borders, right within democratic societies. Freedom House calls this transnational repression, um, and uh, you know it's just a testament to the important role of. Um, of civil society actors in documenting these abuses and uncovering them. No, I think it's good you you, you mentioned Freemas' work on transnational oppression because because we've had cases, well, I'm, I guess all over, but we we we've had cases of of um, of dissidents or refugees living in Canada, particularly Uyghur uh, human rights activists who have been targeted, uh, silenced, or threatened through uh, through all sorts of different methods both on Western, um, uh, I mean, Western social media platforms, but also on Chinese ones as well. So it's a growing problem. I think people are trying to figure out the authorities. What can we do to protect these people? Um, it really is um, a challenge. So once again, everyone, if you have a question for Jessica, please don't be afraid to uh, ask for us to make you a speaker. Be, uh, I'm tired of listening to my voice, so I'd rather hear someone else pose a question. You might have uh, something happening in the news that you want to bring our attention to or or there could be research issues that, that, that perhaps that we could follow in order to further understand the challenge of digital authoritarianism. Uh, Jessica, I had, a, I had a question about uh, more kind of the, the, the trends that we're seeing uh, that, that you expect to see in, in the near future in terms of digital authoritarianism. Do you think that, that, that um, democracy are finally going to push back? Or do you think um, surveillance technologies, for example, are getting even... Um, worse in a way that and more more intrusive and we're not really seeing what, what's happening and it's hard to to kind of we've lost so many years uh in terms of uh, the surveillance industry do you think we can catch back yeah it's a good question i mean i think it's it's really challenging to develop a sort of coherent threat picture um you know like that identifies, you know, particular examples of digital authoritarian activity that, you know, have impacts for the competition between de democracy and illiberal challengers. Um, but I think we're getting better at it, right? I think we understand we need to do it. And so I do think that there's a, you know, like growing attention to this challenge um, and to seeing it as a human rights concern, but also, you know, one that really bears on geopolitical competition and, you know, the sovereignty of, of democratic governments. Um, you know, in terms of trends generally, 
I think there are a couple of things to watch. I don't know if it would be helpful to talk about those. Um, but I, you know, I think a couple of things to watch are um, this sort of greater emphasis on data fusion out of China, uh, right? I think there's a growing recognition within China that it's not just what data you collect, but what you do with the surveillance data you collect and how well you can integrate it. Like that is fundamental to how, to sort of how useful um, it is. And so, you know, I think we're kind of watching China solve what it calls like data, the problem of data islands, um, but to really try to create, you know, uh, to integrate various data sets so that they're accessible across levels of government um, and, you know, across uh, across provinces. And I think this is two implications, at least. Um, you know, I think it's probably going to sharpen the, the Chinese government's capacities um, in terms of conducting uh, digital authoritarian activity at home. And I think to the extent that, like, they're going to export data integration platforms, just like, uh, you know, their other surveillance tech, I think that may have a really sort of detrimental effect on governance trends um, globally. So that's one place where uh, what was sort of one concerning trend, um, you know, and there are others, the copycat legislation um, and this sort of increasing Russia-China coordination. Thanks. Um, Marie, I don't know if you had another question or was that was that it? Uh, if anyone else has a question, otherwise, um, perhaps I, I, I'd like to know as well, like, China has its own technologies, um, and we can't do anything against, I guess, against those and about uh, uh, how it uses its own technologies. What do you think? Do you think something can be done? You know, it uses Weibo and to, to spread disinformation, but, you know, they have their their own surveillance technologies that they use against the Uyghurs. Can we do anything against that? Yeah, I think the sort of options for democratic societies in terms of shaping how autocrats use these tools at home are pretty limited. Um, you know, I think, again, we can, like, avoid being implicated in, um, you know, in in supporting those efforts through, you know, different kinds of export controls and investment screen, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think we should be sort of humble about our ability to sort of shape the trajectory of how the Chinese government uses its own technologies within its borders. And I, I also another question about more transnational surveillance via social media. I know um, whether it's in the U.S. or in Europe or here in Canada, we have we have, for example, you know, Saudi distance here who get uh, harassed on social media uh, from Saudi Arabia. Um, what can our own governments do to protect dissidents that live within our own borders? Or even just, just normal people in the, who live here in Canada, you know, in the diaspora, who don't even take a position against uh, Saudi Arabia yeah. or, or China. Yeah, no, it's a huge problem. I mean, I think... A uh, sort of there are a number of pathways. One is just enacting strong privacy legislation um, that helps protect the you know the data you know of these and other and all users um, you know against exploitation. Um, and then there's just like requiring asking companies to be more transparent about the kinds of requests that they receive from government, exactly what governments, when, how, how they acted on them, and when, you know, why or under what basis. Um, and then there's also just like drawing attention to this problem, speaking about it, um, you know, in Global Fora um, and, you know, making clear that it's unacceptable. Um, 
you know, I think those are some of the things that governments can do to push back. Jessica, um, I, I, I agree with you about it's very challenging to um, try to influence how some of these Chinese tech companies are operating within China. Uh, but there's been increase increased amount of voices beginning to say that uh, these companies that that in which we do have evidence of them engaging in digital authoritarianism surveillance, for example, surveillance of the Uyghurs, um, we do have a lot of research showing which Chinese companies have been uh, um, complicit in um, in the persecution of these minorities. And I'm wondering if uh, if stopping these companies from entering Western markets from the U.S., from Canada, from Australia, if that could, is that a tool that could put some pressure or like I know it's being discussed in the U.S. and it's starting to be discussed here, but I'm wondering globally if you're seeing this grow at all. Yeah, I think it's an important measure. I'm just not sure that it will be enough um, to alter, you know, the Chinese Communist Party's interest calculations. Um, but but I don't oppose it um, as a measure. Uh, I think things like the UN report that came out last night um, was those kinds of um, very public statements from credible sources, I think, have may have more of an impact. Um, you know, China is, you know, <laughs> unlike Russian information operations, which are primarily focused on like weakening their democratic competitors, but really not at all about shaping perceptions of Russia positively or, you know, sort of promoting a positive vision of Russia. That's not Russia's game. It's very much China's game. Um, you know, China's very interested in um, you know, coming in behind, you know, Russian operations that kind of, you know, dent the appeal of the political West or of democratic governance in order to present its model, its governance models of an attractive alternative. Um, you know, Russian state media almost never talks about Russian domestic politics or Russia itself. Chinese state media talks about China all the time. It's, you know, very much about, uh, you know, focus on sort of presenting a positive image of the country. And, you know, when major human rights reports like the one that came out, you know, this week, like those are, that sort of pierces, uh, I think, you know, Chinese interests, like more so perhaps to a greater extent, although, I mean, it's unknowable, but, um, but I think those are the kinds of activities that create a record um, that are, you know, I think overtime important. No, totally true. So we're almost at the end of the session. We had you for three minutes. I don't know um, if anyone has anything they'd like to say or if there are any um, uh, closing thoughts you had, Jessica. Well, hearing nothing else from anyone else, thanks so much for being uh, for hosting this conversation and for inviting me to join you. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity to have worked on this, um, this paper and, um, and to discuss some of its findings with all of you.